We're in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. That's a typo. Yeah. <laughs> 1 Peter. I knew that. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is God's word. Almighty God, you may be seated. I'll pray quickly for the sermon. Open our ears to hear your, your voice in these words. Be with Kyle as he preaches and do your miracle, God, whether in the speaking or the hearing. Change our hearts to glorify your name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Joe, and thank you so much, Christina, for that beautiful testimony. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, you're dismissed if you're going to Sunday school this morning. We forgot to say that. <clears throat> but it's uh, such a wonderful treat um, to be here this morning. How many people have ever been mad at God <laughs> because of confusion, um, because of loss or tragedy? We've all, I think, been there at certain points in our lives, maybe experienced various levels of trauma uh, or grief, um, but I think all of us have, have been there to an extent where life becomes confusing, God seems silent um, at best, um, or violent with us at worst. And that's how we feel, and we take that pain and we take that brokenness um, to God. Keep going after him, like Christina said, don't give up. Be honest, God can take it. If you're mad at him, tell him, um, and he'll speak to you. We um, approach a situation in our text in First Peter chapter 2 that we have a sort of turn now from an internal sort of relationship with God, uh, the establishing of a new heart and all the work of Christ that, that he's accomplished in order to give us that. And now it's pivoting to our response to that to the world around us. How do we think about the world and how do we treat the world um, around us? I was recently watching a, a documentary on Netflix um, that was uh, created by a woman named Dia Khan. It's, uh, if you look for it on Netflix, I'm going to warn you, it's not pretty. Um, there's lots of uh, violence and language. Um, so just to warn you, um, I do think it's worth watching, though. But she's a, a Muslim woman who began to interview neo-Nazis and jihadists in her seeking to understand how they think, why they think what they think, and why they do what they do. Very interesting, very raw. <laughs> Um, documentary. And she writes, uh, she interviews many uh, uh, in the first, there's, there's a series of these. In the first um, documentary, she deals with uh, neo-Nazis and she interviews, interviews many uh, um, uh, Ku Klux Klan members and neo-Nazis. One man's name was Ken Parker. And she said um, this about Ken Parker, and this was actually in an interview after, after the uh, film was, was produced. She describes Ken Parker as he wears a swastika tattooed to his chest. He posts neo-Nazi flyers in Jewish neighborhoods. <clears throat> he says the most vile things I have ever heard. And he marched at Charlottesville as well, if you're familiar with that event. 
One day, he called me up. This was after the, the pr production of the video. Uh, she spent much time with him, interviewing him. And she call he called me up, she says, a feminist, <laughs> a woman, a liberal Muslim, and told me, I've left, and he called me his friend. See, what happens, she records, what happens to Ken after the filming of this video is he started listening to people like me, black people, Muslim people, etc. Ken became, she, she, she speaks, Ken became friends with a pastor of a mostly black church who lived in his apartment complex. The pastor invited him and his fiance to his church. And Ken, basically, listen to what he does. Ken goes, he basically stands in front of everyone at the church and says, I used to be in the Ku Klux Klan, now I'm, a neo -Nazi now I'm in a neo-Nazi organization, these are the views I hold, and sits down in a black church. <laughs> that was, the, she continues, that was the last straw for him. Oh, excuse me. Um, after the church service was done, people came up to him and shockingly began to hug him and embrace him. And they said to him, look, we detest what you stand for, but it takes a whole lot of courage for somebody like you to come into a place like this and share what you shared. After he was done, uh, excuse me, that was the last straw for him, for him, for Ken, where he realized that the people he hated so deeply are showing him nothing but kindness and compassion and an open heart and are showing it to him even though he doesn't deserve it. His whole ideology fell apart. Now, when I, when I was reading this story this week and, and watching this documentary, um, following the documentary, I read the story and was just amazed about Ken's, to, to read about Ken's transformation and what brought it about. I couldn't think of a better way to illustrate the text that we just read to you this morning. A world that persecutes the local church, Christians, whatever, in whatever form that persecution might find, is one, not by sticks and stones, not by ang angry blog responses, not by defending ourselves. It's one with love. Isn't that incredible? That's what the Word of God says. This is not just Ken's story. This is what we read about in 1 in Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. That the transforming power of conversion in a person's life is to not convince them that they're wicked and that they're evil, but it's to love them. Right? <clears throat> if we're going to move from lost to confused, insecure, and scared, and angry people, <clears throat> it's love that heals us and picks us up and restores our joy. Amen? It's love that does that. You see, when we're mad at God because he took this or that from us, and he responds to us with patience and kindness and compassion, the goodness of God in Romans leads us to repentance. The love of God help, is what is the light to our eyes that helps us realize that we've actually been running from him, convicts, convicts us of our own sin. In the first part of Peter's letter, that's chapter 1, verse 1, 
through chapter 2, verse 10, Peter describes how coming to faith in Jesus Christ produces hope in the most dismal of circumstances because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He gives us reasons why we can hope in spite of our trials and tribulations. And he begins to explain why the death and resurrection of Christ forgives our sin and gives us the hope of eternal life. Reunites us, forgives us, reunites us to a loving relationship with the Father, Creator, King that we were cut off from assures us of a future hope and home in spite of the trials of our lives. He gives us a new birth, gives us eyes to see. And this new birth demonstrates itself in two ways. And again, this is the first part of 1 Peter. It demonstrates itself in two ways. We begin to love God, which is characterized by holiness, and we begin to love his people, his church, the living stones. We talked about that last week. But what about the rest? What about the others? outside of the walls of our own church, the evil people. We were once evil, but now we're not, <laughs> right? Does the new birth provide a new relationship with people outside of our spiritual house? And I think that this text shows indeed that it does. How does the Christian engage the world around it? What should our attitude be toward it? And what, if anything does this have to do with how I can recover from trial in my life, life after loss, hope in the midst of tragedy? The rest of Peter, the rest of the, the epistle, to the, the letter that Peter writes deals with answering the question of what my new life in Christ practically means in relationships with people outside of the faith that I have. That's almost what the rest of Peter is dealing with. <clears throat> so this morning... I want to take a look, this, verses 11 and 12 is basically the beginning of that conversation. It's like a, the purpose statement of the rest of, of Peter's letter. And we're going to unpack this even further as we go into the book and continue on in the letter. But tonight I might describe these two verses in general as the goal of God's love in Christ. The, the goal of God loving us and restoring us to himself in right relationship with him, there's a reason there is a purpose for it. We see this goal as um, the love of Christ. Okay, So we can describe these two verses as the goal of God's love in Christ. <clears throat> you know, this love includes an initiation, a starting point. It includes tensions. There's tension in this love. There's a goal. And we're going to use four headings to describe this. Friends, foreigners, soldiers, saints. The goal of the love of Christ. Friends, foreigners, soldiers, saints. Now let's unpack this together, okay? Let's look at friends. The first thing that the love of God in Christ accomplishes for you and I is to put us at friendship with God in a loving friendship with the Creator. Peter addresses this local church as friends. In verse 11, he says, Dear friends, the church to God is a community of friends, not strangers, not enemies, but friends. He urges them to pursue certain attitudes about the world around them and their daily lives. But the common attitude that exists, that equips them to treat others with love and compassion, is that they have a new friendship with God. Dear friends, it says. Actually, in the original language, the word is more like beloved friends. My beloved 
It's kind of like maybe an old word that we don't really use anymore, but like it expresses a great compassion, an affection, a love for a community of people that is connected to us spiritually and emotionally. He says, dear friends, beloved, and as we look around with to, at each other, even in this local church here, the many of us that are maybe sl- sleeping warm in our beds right now because it was too rainy and snowy, the brothers and sisters in Christ that are missing, we have a beloved community, a friendship community. That's who we are, even if we're not uh, um, experiencing it, if we, even if we're not pursuing it to that end. That is our position with God and with each other, beloved. You see, the love of God, the, the purpose of Christ's coming is to put us into that new relationship. It's not to save us from a fiery end destruction. It's to, get, it's to put us into a, a passionate and compassionate love relationship with our good God. So that word beloved communicates to us the affection and the desire, the relationship that God desires with us. A group of people who are new and in a unique love relationship with God and with each other. And it's a relationship that's not merit-based. And that's very important for all of us to hear. God didn't call us friends because we helped him move his couch. Right? Like, that's our basis for friendship. You like football, I like football, let's be friends. You're going to help me move my marble, um, you know, entertainment center that's wicked heavy, Man, that must, that you must really love. See, friendship oftentimes in our life is merit-based. We, we share commonalities, we help each other out, and, and therefore we're friends. If, if I'm kind of selfish and we don't like the same things, you're not my friend. Right? When you're a kid, anyone's your friend if they have Nintendo. It's as simple as that. You have Nintendo, let's be friends. You have a TV, let's be best friends. Right? That's how it works. But friendship with God is not merit-based. He doesn't look at you and say, wow, he's got all his hair as, about, as opposed to that guy who's balding, so let me, I'll make him my friend. He makes me look good. As a matter of fact, the friendship that God has with us doesn't make him look good at all. <laughs> right? We're the friends no one wants. Okay? That's true. But God, in spite of it, doesn't base his friendship with us on merit, but on grace. He forgives us. He passes over us, over our shame, over our guilt, and calls us friends. Isn't that incredible? It's a relationship that's not merit-based, but it's given as a gift undeserved to be received with simple faith. You don't got to climb a mountain. You don't got to spin. You don't got to confess to a priest. You you don't got to eat crackers or drink juice. You come to Jesus by faith and repentance, and he receives you. Isn't that incredible? So this gift doesn't come to us because we're white or because we're black or slave or free or rich or poor. It is not merited by any of those things. It's a gift offered to all people and received simply by faith. And when you receive it, because of the merit of Jesus, these are received as beloved friends. Your position changes. Now, Colossians 1 really, I think, opens our eyes to the drama of this scenario. It says in verse um, 21 of Colossians chapter 1, Once you were alienated from God. Once you were enemies 
of God in your minds because of your evil behavior. Oh, and that is a sobering outlook on life, isn't it? It is not 21st century American dogma to describe ourselves like this. But this is how the Bible describes us. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies of God in your minds because of your evil behavior. That is the sentence that is pronounced on all of us. Guilty. And we don't like about that. We hem and haw against it. But friends, doesn't our experience in life just prove it to be true? Something is lost, something in us is broken, and there's something in us that tells us that's partly, if not all, my fault. There's something wrong with me. I am not entirely innocent. For any of us to deny that would be to deny, I think, reason. Colossians 1 continues, But now he has reconciled you, how? Not by cleaning up your nose, not by ironing your shirt, not by getting up early every day and beginning an exercise regimen, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death so that he might present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Friends, beloved, a grace gift to us. That humanity is this separate from God, I know we resist. But friends, our sin toward him is our undoing. And it required nothing less from God than alienation from his loving presence. The Bible calls that death, the second death. The Bible calls that hell. We talk about hell sometimes in church, and if you've heard of Christians before, you might know that sometimes they talk about this place called hell. What is hell in Scripture? Very simply put, it is the eternal separation from God's good love towards his creation. It's the withholding of God's love that is unending. And that's what the, the sentence of death is pronounced on those because we, our minds were enemies at enmity with God. And doesn't that explain, we might not like it, but doesn't that sort of explain our confusion in the world that we live in, our alienation, the sense that things just don't really satisfy me the way that I thought they would. But the goal of God's love, friends, is to take what was once a group of enemies and make them friends by grace. Simply to be received by you by faith right now, to put down and to take up, to trust in Christ, to give us seeing eyes by which we'll love and believe and follow him. Amen? That's the new community that God's created for us, the community that he calls friends, the community that he calls his beloved. That's who we are. If you are not in Christ, friends, you don't have to be outside of Christ. Your sins aren't that bad. They're not unforgivable. You're not that broken. Whatever's happened to you, maybe things that aren't even your own fault, things that have done to you, 
Nothing can keep you from the love of Christ. Simply come and believe and trust. Look to Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. He loves you and cherishes you. So friends, if you're not in Christ, it is what God's work and love offers to you. Should you simply surrender and believe in him, he'll make you his friend. He'll forgive you of all your sin to make you stand in his presence with great joy. Amen? So being in God's love means that we are his friends, not his enemies. Very simple, right? First point. Being in God's love, the result, the goal of God's love in Christ through his death and resurrection is that we are his friends and not his enemies, his beloved. Every inclination of your heart might tell you that that's not true because of your experience or your losses. But friends, if you are in Christ, in spite of how you might feel at any given moment, it is true. And anything that would tell you otherwise is a lie. It's a lie, pure and simple, and we'll get into that in a moment. So number one, you're friends of God. Number two, the, lo- the goal of the love of God through Christ is to make us foreigners. This is really interesting. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Now, he's writing to people who are living in a country in which they are not foreigners and exiles. They are citizens of the country that they live in from an earthly perspective. So what's Peter talking about? He's talking about something different, something spiritual, something heavenly. Other translations read aliens and strangers. I urge you as aliens and strangers. And that's extremely impactful Because do you remember the verse I just read in Colossians? we got to rehearse this a little bit. Now, we're aliens and strangers after we believe in Jesus, but the Bible describes us as aliens and strangers before as well. Let's follow this together. It said in Colossians, let me remind you, once you were alienated from God. Once you were alienated from God from God. What God's love does for us is create a reversal of position. We are still aliens, just not no longer aliens of God. We become aliens of the earthly country. Now we're citizens of the heavenly country. Before it was reversed, we were aliens of the heavenly country and citizens of the earthly. But in Christ, you become aliens of the earthly and citizens of the heavenly. Do you see that reversal? That's what happens when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. God's love creates a reversal of position. Once you were alienated from God, once you were citizens of the world, now you are alienated from the world and citizens of heaven. Isn't that incredible? A significant change is happening that we need to understand, that we can't overlook here. You know what an alien is? It's someone who temporarily resides in a different country while maintaining citizenship in another country. Right? So if I go to Russia, I'm an American. I'm an alien in Russia because I have an American citizenship. You see? Or if a Russian person is here and they have Russian citizenship, they're an alien here because they have citizenship in another country. They're aliens. They're strangers. They're foreigners. So an alien 
is someone who temporarily resides in a different country while maintaining citizenship in another country. So to be an alien and to be alienated are two different things, okay? To be an alien and to be alienated are two different things. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens. But Colossians read, you were alienated from God. Oh, and this is important, and I hope that you understand this well. <clears throat> to be an alien and to be alienated are two different things. And if I'm an alien, it presumes a right relationship with my home country. So in other words, if I go to Russia and I'm an alien there, and I still have citizenship here, it means that my relationship with my home country is still intact. That I still have a good relationship with my home country. But if I'm, a, if I'm in Russia because I've been alienated from my, my true citizenship, it's because something happens. Maybe I committed a crime or I did something wrong that put me at a, at, at a, a, in a bad position, a cut-off position from my home country. You see, you see the difference? So there's a difference between being an alien and being alienated. To be alienated implies that a person has been removed from the relationship. Friends, if, that's, if it's true that all, all people, because of sin, have been alienated from God, this would imply that their original purpose is not in operation. In other words, they were not meant to be alienated from God. Once you were alienated from God, in other words, something happened that when I was in a good, right, whole relationship with God, I became cut off from him. You see that? That means that it is unnatural and incongruous for people outside of, for people to be outside of right relationship with God. It means that if you are outside of right relationship with God, something is wrong and you know it. You're not supposed to be. You were created to be a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of this earth. That's why, friends, your, citizens, your citizenship on this earth does not satisfy you. Because you have been cut off from what will satisfy you and given, given something that cannot satisfy you. Does that make sense? <clears throat> it is unnatural and incongruous. It's outside of humankind's nature to be set for, separate from God. And if that's the case, then to be so, if we are to be separate from God, it's going to create all sort of soul confusion and dysfunction <clears throat> to be bound to a new country that is not the heavenly one. And friends, am I ringing any bells? <laughs> Yet the love of God was determined to alienate the alienated. You see that? You see, we're, we were alienated from God. Our citizenship became this earth, but God said, nope, that's not go good enough for me. I love this person too much. I am going to get them back. I'm going to bring them back as citizens into my heavenly country, and now this earthy country is going to be where they're the alien, where they reside as aliens, as foreigners. Incredible. 
to take those alienated from God, bind them to himself, make them aliens in the world that they live in, and set them to the country of their purpose, their God. Amen? These are strangers, the Bible calls Christians. Aliens and strangers. Right? That's sort of emphasizing that our time here on this earth, not only are we aliens, but it's temporary. It's short-lived. It won't last forever. And you know, yeah, right, sister? Amen. It's going to end. And you're going to be reunited with your heavenly citizenship, where you are citizens in. You see, friends, you are not first citizens of the United States. You are not first a husband or a wife. You are not first a father or a mother or a friend. You are first a heavenly citizen, a friend of God, the bride of Christ. That's why you were created, and that's where you're headed. Okay? Jesus said this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, the earthy citizenship that many of us had comes to an end. It comes to an end for everybody. The vermin destroy it. Thieves break in and steal. But the heavenly citizenship is unending. Your heart is safe there. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Your heart is safe there. Jesus also said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What's he talking about? If anyone wants a heavenly citizenship, he will lose his earthly one. That's what he means. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his own soul? You see, we get the heavenly citizenship, but if we lose the, excuse me, we get the earthly citizenship, but if we lose the heavenly, what, what use is that? Because the rust and the vermin will eventually decay it all away. Now, some people might, some kind of like astute thinkers might think like, wow, all this heavenly, earthly stuff might make us really arrogant as a church. Like, we're the preserved ones. We're the ones that God has saved, and the rest of the world, they're just going to burn. You know, like they're separated. So isn't it great to be part of the elite few that got to go to heaven, right? So it could set up like this neglect or pride. Like, aren't we so great? Or, you know, what use is it to care for the homeless or to, to, um, to keep our planet clean and safe and things like that, to fight injustice, to care for orphans? It's all going to end anyway, so just forget it. Right, so couldn't this like heavenly, earthly type of dichotomy, leave us to be neglectful or prideful people. Well, certainly could, you certainly could go there if you wanted to in your mind, but the, go the gospel would never lead you there, and we're going to explain why in a moment. But what's more, if, if living our lives on this earth um, leads us to like, experience pain or grief because of suffering, shouldn't the idea that heaven is coming, just eliminate all of our emotional sorrow, right? Why does anything hurt when it's earthly related, when a loved one dies or a divorce happens? Shouldn't we just kind of logically, well, I'm going to heaven, I'm not here for you anyway. 
Why does it hurt still, though? And it, why should it? Or, I mean, Jesus wept. Well, we're going to answer these, these questions in a moment. For now, I just want to say that the goal of God's love is to create a new community called his beloved, his friends, and make, setting us up as foreigners, aliens in the world, because we are now citizens of a new country. Okay? That's the goal of the love of God. <clears throat> Number three, what, what's the third goal of the love of God? Well, this one seems a little violent. He makes us soldiers. He says, abstain from sinful desire which wage war against your soul. Abstain from sinful desire which wage war against your soul. The Christian who is rescued out of sin, taken out of darkness and put into light, is told to put down sinful desires which wages war against your soul. we got to understand this. Because it might seem maybe counterintuitive. But the love of God has immersed us in a struggle. I mean, doesn't this not say anything? If it doesn't say anything else, doesn't it say that? Abstain from sinful desires which wages war against your soul. When you become a Christian, you enter a war, a struggle. We're not told that a lot. I don't know that I talk about that all that much. But the reality is, becoming a Christian doesn't always make your life better right away. As a, lot, as a matter of fact, it can become quite worse. There is a soul war that begins. Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You know, before I was a Christian, I'm sorry, this is a little crude, but before I was a Christian, I didn't have a war waging in my heart about looking at naked people. I didn't. I just did it because it was fun and it was pleasurable. I didn't have like this inner, like, I shouldn't be doing this, this conviction, or if I failed in something, I, it didn't, wasn't like crushing to me, like, I need to overcome this. Like, that came after Jesus. Thanks, Jesus. I was fine before. I didn't care about the things that I did that were wrong, right? I just got drunk and had fun. Isn't that true? But when you come to faith in Christ, something happens. A struggle begins. A war in our hearts. Don't let that be a sign to you that you lack faith. Let that be a sign to you that you have faith. Right? Amen? So it, it seems counterintuitive, but it's the, the, the normal process of God saving us. The love of God has immersed us in a struggle. There's a war, there's a tension. The old country is fighting the new one. It's not gone entirely yet. Salvation in time, coming to faith in Jesus, does not mean that the desire for the old country goes away. It's still there, except a new one is added. You now have a desire for a new country, and those two desires don't get along. They don't. Amen? Can the Christians say amen? They don't get along. <laughs> Jesus has rescued us on the cross. Between the cross and his return... There is an internal and invisible battle. A war begins. And the good soldier that has a new citizenship is pictured as needing to fight, to put off, to put down, to wrestle every single day and fight this fight. Now there are some questions that we need to ask here. What's a sinful desire? I, I already kind of implied one of them before. 
um, about myself. You might be thinking, okay, put down sinful desires. You see, this is why I don't like Christianity. It's just all behavior stuff, right? Don't do bad things. Don't drink. Don't have sex. Like all this stuff, right? Be, be a good boy. So put down sinful desires. We have to ask, what, do, what does it mean? What is a sinful desire? Now, if you're like me, you start thinking of dark, dirty deeds, right? Things that we don't talk about. Sexual deviancy, rape, substance abuse, wild parties, violence, you know, you name it. That's stuff that even people outside the church are kind of like, eh, no, don't do that. Right, put that stuff down. Maybe, oh, how about we can tone it down a little bit? Like, those are, those are the really deviant people, right? Maybe we tone it down and we start talking about things like lying or pornography or, you know, stuff like that, cheating on your girlfriend. Like, you know, you shouldn't do those things, right? They're not as bad as those other things we talked about, though. Still bad, but not maybe as bad. Now, no doubt, Peter's maybe considering some of these things, but we need to dig deeper than just, like, these kind of behavioral things. We need to ask, why do I do those things? Why am I tempted to do those things to begin with? What's in my heart that is motivating this? You see, that's the issue. That's what Peter, I think, is saying. You need to put that down. Whatever it is in, that, that's in your heart that motivates that behavior, that's the root, right? That's the root cause. We need to put that down. Now, what is it, though? Sin in the Bible, above everything else, is exalting ourselves over God. It's saying God is not God, something else is. Something else is our God, and most of the time it's us. We don't realize it, but most of the time it's us. Whenever we say, oh, God's word says this, no, I don't, that doesn't sound right. I think this. Well, you've just made yourself God. Right? Because if God speaks and we say no to him, that means, th that logically, right, that's got to mean he's not God. If God is ultimate, if God is the author of all things, and we say no to him, what we're saying is that you're not God, something else is God. So the first sin in our hearts is idolatry, isn't it? That's what, that's, we have to, Martin Luther said this, before you start breaking any of the commandments in the Ten Commandments, you have to break the first one first. And that is, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, the other ones are don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, right? He said, before you commit any of those, you have to break the first one. And that is, you set up another god. Well, why? Because if you're stealing, you're saying no to God. And if you're saying no to God, it must mean he's not God, which means you have just made another God for yourself, right? So before you break any commands in Scripture, those behavioral things, the, the first thing that you've done, whether you're conscious of it, of it or not, is you have made yourself God or something else, okay? That's the sinful desire that we need to put down. You say, what, a desi I, want, I desire? You're, are you saying, preacher, that I desire to be God? Yes, I do. That, that is what I'm saying. You think that something else can save you. You think that something else can make you happy and fulfill you. Only God can do that. Why? Because he's your creator. God is the one that we originate from. He's the one that gives us our purpose. He's the one that gave us arms and legs and eyes and teeth, right? He made us to perform a certain function. He establishes our worth. He's the one that keeps us safe. In that sense, God is our savior. He's our provider. He's our author. He defines who we are. And friends, if God is not that for you, something else will be. That becomes your God. 
even as Christians, friends, our renewed self in Christ will constantly need to battle the old lie that our worth and our meaning and our purpose comes from some kind of social status or relationship or accomplishment. You see, it's very easy for me. I'm just going to confess something for you as a pastor. It's very easy for me to feel unsafe and like I stink at my job if there's not many people in church on Sunday morning. Is that true? I mean, just picture yourself in my shoes, and I'll picture myself in your shoes. If you're not selling many cars, what's the math you're going to do if you sell cars? Well, maybe I stink at this, right? Maybe I thought I was, I was awesome at this and I'm not. All this insecurity comes into the self-pity. It's very easy for me to do that, for me to go there in my mind. But friends, if I'm basing my own self-worth, my talents, my, my lovability, based on how many people are in this room, I'm going to feel great when it's full and feel crappy when it's empty. This day, it's like in between. <laughs> There's enough of you for me to feel not so much like a loser, right? <laughs> that happens. That happens. It's a battle. I got I to gotta put that down every day, every single day of my life, because this is my work. This is what I do. And you got to do it, too. You have things in your life, too. You got to put down every day the idea that this can save you. If you think that, that's why you end up in bed with another, wife, or another woman or another man. You, you, you do it, you're doing those things because you've come to believe that your safety, your worth, your lovability is found in that behavior. You see? But all, uh, so many of us end up going down that road in our lives. We end up in that bed or, or, or in this place or whatever it is with this new job, and we realize, like, oh, it didn't do what I thought it would do because it's not your God, friend. It can't establish you. It can't satisfy you. And by the way, when you come to God through faith in Christ, now all of those things have this great joy because you don't expect more out of them than what they can give you. I can love my wife for her, not because I think she's God. And that makes me love her more. It's just true. As Christians, our renewed self in Christ constantly needs to battle the old lie that our worth and meaning and purpose comes from God's creation because it doesn't. It comes from him. That's the ultimate sinful desire we need to put down. That's the desire. You put that down, the Ten Commandments will fall in line. Right? The law of God becomes beautiful to you, not a, not a nuisance. How do you abstain from sinful desire? Okay, that's all nice. You, you sold me, buddy. But how, how do you pull this off? I mean, you don't know me. <laughs> this is hard. Amen. You don't know me either. It seems like a contradiction, because if I'm abstaining from a sinful desire in the sense that I don't desire it, then how would this create a war in my soul? You see? He says, abstain from sinful desires. Well, if I'm abstaining it, there won't be a war to begin with. Does that make sense? The, the, uh, the desire is not in there, so why? what's going on here? This doesn't make sense. If you don't desire ice cream, why would it be a challenge for you to abstain from eating ice cream? You follow my logic here? So when I read this text of the Bible, I'm a little confused. Maybe you guys can help me out. Okay? <clears throat> I think, though, when we start to understand what this is saying, this is where it gets really hard, especially in our culture and in our world. 
it means, I think that what this verse means, it means that we need to deny ourselves something that we want. We have to say no to something that we desire because it's wrong. Right? Oh, that's not, uh, in our world, that's not how we think anymore. We think, no, to do that is to deny who I am. It's to deny my identity. So that's to do damage to my psyche, to my self-esteem. If I ever say no to myself, it's like me saying no, be, me saying no to my manhood or my sexuality or who I am, my own self-identity. So there's no morals anymore. There's no right and wrong anymore. It's because this is who I am. To deny myself is to do damage on my own ego, right? But according to this, to this passage, we need to say no to something that we would naturally say yes to. Isn't that hard? I mean, think about it on an easy, kind of simple level. I just mentioned one. Ice cream. When I want ice cream, I eat ice cream. Right? When, when I'm doing a diet, right, and the, the no ice cream diet, and I want ice cream, I eat ice cream three days later. Right? Like, if <laughs> that's just me. That's, I mean, just ice cream is hard enough to deny myself. Isn't that true? You guys with me? Come on. Come on, people. Right. Okay. Thank you. There's an inner tension when we desire something, we normally would just naturally pursue it. There's this inner tension if we raise the stakes here a little bit. It's harder to say no to things that we naturally want to do. You know, this is exactly the way the Bible describes the spiritual life in Romans 7. For I know the good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature, right? My, my, my earthy citizenship person. I know that good itself doesn't dwell in me there, right? 15-year-old Kyle didn't even think twice about doing the wrong thing. There was no conflict. So I know that the good itself does not dwell in my earthy citizenship, my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. <laughs> For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law working in me, waging war. There's that language again waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin at work in me. Now, if you keep reading Romans 7, there's hope. Who can, you know, who can save me from this body of sin, sin and death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But I present this to you to demonstrate to you that as Christians, there is an internal struggle. There is a dichotomy of, of commitments. The old self, the earthy self, wants what it wants, the, the, the new spiritual self wants something different. So the, so the desire is present, but it must be denied. And that's the war, the soul war, to say no to something that we think we can say, that can save us. And at times, these are dark, dirty deeds. You recall um, the time when the rich man wanted to know, uh, or wanted to follow Jesus? You remember what Jesus said? Sell all your possessions and follow me. Jesus wasn't saying you've got to give away all your money to be saved or to be forgiven. He was saying that he cannot, you cannot have other saviors to be saved. And for this man, that was his dough. It was his money. The Christian life is the ongoing battle to put down the constant temptation to be saved by something other than Jesus. It's there. It's present. 
And if I were to pretend to you anything else, I would be lying to you. It's not the message of Scripture. We might not like it, but, but when we come to faith in Christ, that remains. The old self remains. God gives us a new self, and a struggle begins. Okay, there's hope, and we'll get to that in a moment. Okay? <clears throat> the Bible gives more instruction on how to, how to actually put down the sin, but very, very simply here, we're told three things that it's a choice. We need to kind of mentally be aware that we have to do this every day. Number two, it's hard because it's likened to a war, right? It's a choice. It's hard. And number three, it doesn't end. It's ongoing. Every day, put it down, right? Number three, the, love of, the goal of the love of Christ is to make us saints. And it has made us saints. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The process of warring and putting down the sinful desire as God's people produces what the Bible here describes as good. It produces good lives. The goal to the love of God in our lives is to live good lives. And this good is the demonstration of the love of God really abiding in our soul. The good comes out. You see, it's a war, it's a battle, but as we engage it, the good comes out. You see? It transforms the way we treat others, our attitudes towards God's world. You know, friends, part of the purpose of your transformation of love is so that it would expand beyond yourself. God didn't just love you for you. He loved you so that love would spread to other people around you. It doesn't make us neglectful or prideful. This verse puts that on its ear. It's not uh, the citizens of heaven versus the citizens of Satan, right? Like It says to us that love goes to them too. It offers them the same. It will include them in the same spiritual house if they simply believe in Christ. Our transformation of love is a demonstration that whoever might receive Christ will also be transformed by it. Live such good lives amongst the pagans, the world, the earthly country, right? That they might see your good deeds and glorify God. This is talking about their salvation. They're coming to faith in Jesus. So our transformation of love is a demonstration that whoever receives Jesus will also be transformed by that same love. They're not excluded from the offer of life in Christ because of some sin in their lives. On the contrary, the love of the church towards earth's citizenship, citizens, is a demonstration of God's love for them also. And his death and resurrection offers them life too if they would simply come to him. And that's you, friend, if you don't know him. We might say it like this, right? It's the last straw. When we realize that the people or the God we hated so deeply is showing us nothing but kindness and compassion and an open heart and showing it to us even though we don't deserve it, our whole ideology falls apart. Amen? Let me close with this text of Scripture, if you'll close your eyes with me, and let's meditate on this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come to the world, but people love darkness instead of light. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes to the light so that it might be seen plainly what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Oh God, here stands our choice this morning to trust in Christ, to rescue us, and he will. Or to continue to rely on our own saviors that cannot save. God, I pray, Lord, that this morning that the goal of love would be realized in our lives, that we would be your friends, your beloved, foreigners in the earthy country and citizens, citizens in the new one. And God, that through this, putting down as soldiers, God, that we would become good saints that lead others to the same faith of, in Christ. Friend, if you don't know Christ, would you come to know him right now? Would you put your faith and trust and love in him? Simply receive the good news of Christ. Accept that it was a work done for you in your place. God saved me a sinner. I want to be born again. I want to go to heaven when I die. I want to be in your good presence. I want to be your friend, your beloved. Nothing else has saved me. I've tried. You're the only God. You died for me in my place by sending your son on the cross who rose again so that I would rise too. Friend, if that's you, everything that you've ever done that's offended God is gone. You are right with God. You are pure. You have an eternal hope and home that cannot be taken from you. God, we thank you and we love you so much. We ask that you bless the rest of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So first